Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. It's so hard for me to start when it's my turn. You just pointed at me and said, okay, Scott, it's your turn. When it's my turn to do the intro, I want to listen. I want Shane to keep singing. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever heard this song all the way through. I just hear the first eight seconds, and then it drifts off into the background. I've got to go home and listen to this sometime. My name is Scott Wright. I'm a mediocre journalist. Katie, how far in are we? And we're already off the rails here. Yeah, we're 30 <laughs> seconds in. <sighs> I'm Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. I'm Katie Givens, and I'm not a lawyer. And this song is available on iTunes, Scott, if you want to go listen to it. There you go. See, that was just a... Shane and I discussed that this morning. That, that was, was a, a shameless plug, plug for wasn't his it? song. For You're Shane's welcome, song. Shane. <laughs> so we're back again, and we're going to mm-hmm. do a crazy story. We were talking off the air just a minute ago before we turned on the microphones, and I looked at Kelly, and I said, Kelly, shut the fuck up. Let's turn on the microphones and start the show, because the, sh- the, the conversation that we should be having was the one that we were having before we went on the air. Just yes. about how crazy this story is. You asked me last week, and I, I, in one word, I said bonkers was the story we were going to talk about last week with Hayward Bissell. This is double bonkers. Yes. This story, I, a lot of you tell me that your favorite is The Black Widow, episode number three. Mm-hmm. This one's going to challenge that one. I agree. Yeah. It's going to. I think so. This we're all in agreement. Yeah, yep. it's pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. This is there's some crazy shit that happened in Alexander City, Alabama in 1977. Well, well do you want to hear the weirdest thing today? I got a spam call from Alexander City, no Alabama. Way. Oh, that's so creepy. I did not answer. No, you I did do not, not know. So but <laughs> this story has murder and mayhem and insurance and court and voodoo. And, and the Harper most, Lee. The most popular author in the history of the state of Alabama gets involved in this case before it's over with. And that's the part that I get to tell at the end. And I can't wait to tell that story. It's really interesting. Yes. This is a story within a story. Yes. Before we get started, let's do some housekeeping. How about some shout outs? I have a shout out that is owed to someone. Uh, Bo Jolly's wife, Katie Lynn. Oh, I think I'm saying that right. She's awesome. mad at us. Well, me in particular, because you. I saw her last week at CVS and... She pointed out to me that we have shouted out to Bo and their daughter, mm-hmm. but not to her. So I'm cleaning that up right now. <gasps> did she, were you supposed to do this previously and you mm, did not do it? There was some confusion about exactly how oh, that was supposed okay. to work. So, say this was all yes. Scott's fault. Correct. But here, okay. So we give a good shout out. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Indeed. And who else? And we got some you more. You had uh, sent us a text this week, Scott, to shout out an Ansley Mathis, uh, I think she was commenting on Facebook. Oh, that's right. She commented on Facebook, and I told her we would give her a nice shout-out. And so, thank you, Ansley. Is that right? Ansley yes. mm-hmm. Mathis. Okay. That, thank so you very much. I Appreciate mean, look, that. I don't know. I've lost track. We may be up over like a dozen listeners at this point. We've said several that's people's scary. name on this show. That's scary. I know. <laughs> and I just want to say one more, one more thing before we get started with the story. If you have an idea for a case, email us. We're going to try to keep those suggestions all in one place. You can still find us in person and say them or text us or put the, put them on social media. But the best way for us to get to your case is to send us an email. At, and our email address is truecrimeoneasystreet, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of one other thing. Colby Abernathy reached oh. out to us. And remember, I shared that picture with you. He showed me a, uh, uh, it was a, it was a, like the first page of a court case. It was, Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but obviously Colby is a listener because he responded to the ad that we placed on Facebook about 
reaching out and letting us know if there was something that we should do. He did it wrong. He didn't send us an email, but he reached out on Facebook. So we forgive you, Colby. Thank you for listening. Uh, Colby was one of my students when I taught at Gadsden State. Smart kid. Always liked him. He was a great student. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Colby. Colby and I are the same age. Oh, Shut how about that? Shut up, Katie. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, thanks for making me He was a student of mine a long time ago, okay? It wasn't... Okay, and whatever. it was college, right? <laughs> yes, it was college. There it was you. college. All right, so yes, that's awesome. So thank you to all of our listeners. We appreciate every one of you. And if we forget you in a shout-out, yeah, it's just, Scott's fault. Yeah, accost yep. me in the so, CVS yep. like last time. If you find him out and about, <laughs> take it out on him. <laughs> And then we'll get your shout out the Perfect. next. <laughs> don't tell him after episode. eight on a Friday or Saturday. Yes, he no, won't I, remember. No, Please I will don't. not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this story, let's just let's just dive right in. Let's we are using a book as our main reference for this story, and the book is by the author Casey Sepp. Casey Sepp. And that's C-E-P, Casey Sepp, C-E-P. The book is called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. So this book is broken up into three different sections. It's a really good resource if you want to know more about this case. We are not going to be able to scratch the surface of everything that this book goes into. It's an incredible book, and we highly recommend it. Yeah, this will be a 12-hour show if we try to tell you everything that's in this book. It's one of the, It's a very well-written book. And yes. It's almost you can see that Sep, and she is a, let me make sure I get this right. Um, she is a staff writer for The New Yorker a former Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and has degrees in English and theology. So, very... You can tell. I'll, yes, you can. When you read this book, you can tell that someone who knows what the hell they're doing wrote this book. Yes. she. It's a very well-written book. We uh, urge you to get this book and, and read this. Yeah, this, don't even listen really to this good. podcast. Just stop, hit stop <laughs> right now and go no, read do, the book. do that after you hear us. Right. Yeah, go get the book. We're not going to, we're not spooling, uh, talking about this case. There's so much more you can learn, so go check this book out. And you're, if, if, do you... Do you guys like to hold a book in your hand? Because I'm thinking both of you have the actual We've both got them right here with yes, us. Yes, I do. Copy. And I have one on my iPad. All right. Well, I've, I've got this on my iPad as well, but it does warm my heart to see young Katie with a book with pink post-it notes sticking out of every single page with notes and things. I mean, that's the way I learned to do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to prepare myself for this show if I just use an electronic version of the book because I want to write something down, stick something in the margins, or use a post-it note. Mm-hmm. And notes on the electronic reading devices just don't work the same for me. Gotcha. I forget that they're there. No, I like an electronic book too. Like I like the search feature. If you're looking for mm-hmm. something, you can find mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. But it helps me to actually sit down and read if I have an actual same. book. I can put my phone away. I can ignore right. the notifications coming through. I don't have to Look at emails coming in. So that's that was my argument on actually ordering the book. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think we all enjoyed it. So uh, let's get to it. And my part is the first part. I'm going to talk about Willie Jr. Maxwell. Willie Jr. Maxwell was born in May of 1925. Now I read 1925. I also read. 1922 in another account. So he's between 1922 and 1925. He is born to Ada and Will Maxwell. 
in Kellyton, Alabama, which is just west of Alexander City. Okay. It's also known as Alex City. So mm-hmm. if we say Alex City during this, we're we're talking about Alexander City. Yeah. And where is that in the state, Scott? Where is that um, it's 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 below half. It's 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 in the bottom half of the state, sort of in the middle, south of Birmingham, not too far from uh, uh, from Wetumpka, from Montgomery. Those are nearby towns. So in the lower in the southeastern area if you split the state into quarters it's in that southeastern section of the state gotcha thank you very much scott's much better with geography than i am uh, i downloaded a map <laughs> so, <laughs> willie jr maxwell was the sixth of nine children that ada and will had there in kellyton alabama in the summer of 1943 he registered for the draft and then Fast forward to 1947 when he was voluntarily discharged and he returned back home to Kellyton, Alabama. He was known for his handsome face, his lean physique, and elegant speech. His speech was very formal and quite charming. He spoke unlike any other Alabamian. So you hear the way that we speak. He didn't speak like yeah. like us. Kind of a- I, I did read that a lot. <laughs> Everyone spoke about his speech. Yeah. Yes, it, it was as quoted in this book, too antique and elegant for everyday life. And so, yet he persisted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. It's what it's going to work to his advantage um, moving forward as he eventually becomes a pastor. Right. But before that, he was employed at Russell Manufacturing in Alexander City. And Russell, if you know, they make uh, shorts, athletic wear, shirts, Choose athletic wear. For a long time, especially if you're an Auburn football fan or Auburn sports fan, they were the official athletic supplier yes, for Auburn Athletics for a long time. It was one of the year one of Tommy Tumberville's years that they moved over to Under Armour. Okay. I believe. I don't yeah. I don't remember exactly which year. One a, a really big clothing manufacturing corporation here in the state yes. of Alabama that that everybody in athletics knew that little that little red, white, and blue Russell. R mm-hmm. Russell logo. So, yep. so he worked for Russell Manufacturing there in Alex City, and and while he's working there, after returning home from the service in 1947, he meets Mary Lou Edwards, and they get married April the second, 1949. He during this time gets fired from his job at Russell uh, for attendance issues. And then in 1962, he, he has several jobs. He, he, will, he will do some pulp wooding. He might work for Russell. He's, you know, kind of bouncing around. But in 1962, he actually becomes an ordained preacher for Philippi Baptist Church in Keno. All of these little areas that I'm saying are, are right around the Alexander City area. Little small towns in that. Uh, yes. What county is that? It's, I think, Coosa County. Is that Coosa County? Is it Coosa or Tallapoosa? Tallapoosa. Tallapoosa. Sorry. Sorry. Tallapoosa County. So he he becomes ordained in 1962, and he preaches revivals um, in the South in the summertime. It is revival season. There's a tent somewhere set up in a field every night of the week. Particularly for the Baptists. To this the, day, still yes, for the Baptist, yeah. it, it is. I grew up Baptist, and so we we had revival every summer. Mm-hmm. It was a is a week long where we had a, a service every night, and um, we had a guest pastor 
your pastor typically did not preach your revival in my church. I don't know. Right. Yep. That, that, I think that's pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah. And was that outside under the tent, the no. whole thing? Okay. No, not you guys in ours, did it in but the sanctuary. Other, other churches have okay. tents that they will set up a, a tent revival, and they don't even have to be affiliated with the church. They'll just um, rent a space in town. They go to different towns all over the South, and those tents will, will pop up, and they'll have a revival. But... For the for these Baptist churches, they will actually contract with another Baptist preacher and have that person to come in okay. and do the revival. It's like a resetting and uh, refresher kind of thing. And so he was. This was very popular because of the the way that he spoke and the way his prayers and his his he was a very dynamic pastor, very passionate and uh, very moving and inspiring. He's very fire and brimstone. This okay. was just right up there alley for. This area of the world and this time and for these Baptist churches, this is exactly what they wanted. So during the summertime, he he went and he preached many a revival. Um, and this is how he became known as he was Reverend Maxwell or simply the Reverend. That's how he's referred to. Okay. Continuing on from this story, the Reverend. Okay. Um, in 1970, he got a certificate of theological study from Selma University. So he takes it further. He becomes ordained in 62. He actually gets a certificate in theological study in 1970. 70, not 70. 70. 70. 70. I knew what you meant. Yep. Okay. So the Reverend was a dynamic preacher, but he was not good with finances. Uh, budgeting was, was no, no good. Uh, he and Mary Lou were constantly struggling financially. At this point in time, they live in a house in Nixburg on Highway 9, just southwest of Alex City. I want you to remember Highway 9. Highway 9. <laughs> Please remember yes, Highway 9. Yes, that's going to play several roles in this story. <laughs> yes. Um, when they are living in Nixburg, just little little towns just southwest of Alex City, they are in debt greatly. They owe tens of thousands of dollars to the Bank of Dadeville, City Bank of Alabama, and Security Mutual Finance. Now, this is not the only issue that they are having in their marriage. Mary Lou is also suspicious that he may be having affairs. Extracurricular activities, I yes. prefer to call it. Yes, because the pa- he's such a dynamic pastor. He he's very he's well liked in every church that he goes to. And I, as again, if you remember, I told you he was he he's known for his handsome face. Yeah, there's a picture he's of him in the book. He's a good looking guy. Uh, yes, yes, he is a good looking guy. So you have this dynamic pastor who comes into your church and he sets you on fire with this revival, and apparently that. It's not all he sets on fire, right? right. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Well, maybe not so allegedly because this suspicion of affairs is going to be solidified when he goes before the Tallapoosa County Probate Court and legitimizes a six-week-old child. Forgot about that. Yeah. Quote, to recognize the said child as my own, capable of inheriting my estate, real and personal, as if born in wedlock... And he gave this little girl the Maxwell name. Okay. So he did this, the right thing. This he, is an old Tommy mm-hmm. story. Yes, it is. But, you know, when he, when he was presented with the facts, mm-hmm. he's, you know what? I need to do the right thing here. And he did. Yep. Okay. Um, now, I don't know what his wife thought about this. And I don't know if she agreed or if she didn't or if she even had a choice. Whatever. Her family said that when Mary Lou 
said her vows, she meant them. You know, we have a saying here in the South, in front of God and everybody. Right. Right. That's a big deal. So she said those vows in front of God and everybody Mm -hmm. in the church right there. You know, she took those very seriously. So she was married. She meant till death do us part. Well, so did he. Yep, he did too. (laughs) And uh, so unfortunately, on the night of August the 3rd, 1970, Maxwell is going to preach a revival at Macedonia Baptist Church near Auburn, Alabama. Now, his wife, Mary Lou, did not want to attend this revival with him. And they agreed she's not going to go. It was a long way from home. She's, she's just going to stay at home. She's, you know, working in a garden. She's yeah, she was shelling peas. peas that day. Yeah, she's shelling peas. They're doing everything that they can to make ends meet. She's taking up another job. So they're, <clears throat> they're doing everything that they can to help with this financial burden. So um, she's going to stay home. Now, the agreement is, according to the reverend, she's going to leave the phone line open so that he can call her on his way home. Because revivals lasted on into the night, or his revivals did. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he would get going, and it would just go on for maybe a few hours. Fire and brimstone, like you said. Exactly. So she knew this about him, and so she knows that it's going to be a late night, because he's also traveling from Auburn, which is a a good good bit of a drive. Say an hour. Yeah. So... Mary Lou's sister is at the the home that night when the reverend leaves for the revival. He leaves at 6 p.m. for the revival. She's going to leave right after the reverend, the sister. And then Mary Lou is going to get into her car and go visit another sister, a different sister. Okay. So she goes and visits the other sister. She comes back home, and she visits for a little bit with her next-door neighbor. Her next-door neighbor's name is Dorcas Anderson. Write that down, too. Yeah. (laughs) And then Mary Lou, she goes back home after visiting with Dorcas Anderson. That name is spelled D-O-R-C-A-S. Poor thing. Yeah, we're not saying saying Dorcas. I'm not calling her. We are. are, Her name is Dorcas Her name is Dorcas. Um, So, the reverend's account of that night is this. Now, remember I said the phone line is supposed to be open. So back He was in, very adamant about that. Yes. Back in 1970, you didn't have a cell phone. You didn't have a bag phone. Not even a bag lousy phone. bag phone <laughs> in 70. A walkie-talkie wouldn't reach that far. So you had a telephone, a landline in your home. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have call waiting. You had one line. So... He would have to stop at somewhere like a service station, use a telephone there to call her and say, I'm on my way home. Right. And she would pick up her phone. There, you know, that, that's how it worked. And I remember that from when I was a child. I mean, there would be mm-hmm. instructions. Hey, look, I'm going to call between 8 and, and, and 9 o'clock tonight. This is, like you said, it was before call waiting. So you didn't hear the little beep, beep, and you flip over. No. You had one line. If I try to call you and you're talking to Katie on the phone, I get a busy signal. Mm-hmm. And I'm pissed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I told you not sound. to freaking do that. And so if I remember this, too. And if you have somebody who's going to call between 8 and 8.30, mm-hmm. and then someone else calls you, and you answer, and you quickly realize it's not the person you're like i gotta go by you know you're, you're rushing them off the phone Hurry, yeah. no, get off the phone yeah. gotta keep the line open <laughs> so um so she's 
he is adamant about that, as you said, Scott. He wants that line kept open. So he says that he finishes his revival. He gets in his car. He drives to a service station. He gets a drink. He tries to call, and she doesn't answer. So he doesn't say there's a busy signal or anything. He just says she doesn't answer. Okay. Now, while she's visiting Dorcas, the next door neighbor, she does explain to her that I got to get back home. He's going to call me when he's leaving. He wants me to keep the line open. But the reason she's not in a, she's not hanging around the house is because she knows there's going to be a, a great amount of time before he calls. So that's why she goes and visits the sister. She talks with the neighbor and then she goes home. Okay. All right. So now I'm back on his account. So forgive me for jumping around there just a little bit. But anyways, he <clears throat> he says he tries to call her. She didn't answer. So he gets in his car and he goes home. And he's he's agitated about that. But when he gets home, she's not there. He he says he gets home around 11. Oh, this is his account mm-hmm. because there's something that's missing. Yep, and I was, yep, wait, yep, I was yep. about to go, wait a minute, no, but no, no, now no, no, I know. No. Okay, okay, sorry. Yep. So he says he gets home at 11 and she's not home. So he just goes to bed. She's an adult. She'll be fine. I'm exhausted. Yeah. He goes to bed. He wakes up around 2 a.m. and she is still not home. So at this time, he says he calls his mother-in-law. But the mother-in-law says that she's not seen her daughter all day. And then he calls the neighbor, Dorcas Anderson, and the sister. And Dorcas says, yes, we saw her earlier that day. um, But once she left here and went home, she that was it. And so he talked to the sister. She said, yes, she came by, but it was early evening, and then she left. So then he calls the police. When the police do their investigation, they come out. They talk to Dorcas Anderson, the next-door neighbor, okay? She's got another story for them. She says, okay, that's what I was, mm-hmm. okay, all right. She says, well, the first time that Mary Lou visited my home was early evening after she returned from her sister's home. But the second time she came over here was about 10 p.m. She was kind of upset and agitated, and she told Dorcas Anderson, the next-door neighbor, that the reverend had been in a bad car accident and she had to go get him. And the car accident had happened near a new site, which is just up Highway 22 near Highway 9. So okay. you get you drive down Highway Nine, you turn on Highway Twenty Two, and you go up to you go to Nearside to where this accident another allegedly little, happened. Yes, another little community near Alex City and Nixburg, which is technically the little community where they live. <clears throat> so Dorcas Anderson goes on to tell the police that um, she believes that the Reverend had been out all night; that he did not return home at eleven p.m. as he had told them. Mm-hmm. She also told police that she, when he did finally return home the next day, that she really, she made a note that his car looked fine. It wasn't torn up, didn't look like it had been wrecked badly. So he forgot to factor in the nosy neighbor into this equation. <laughs> Is what you're telling me. Oh, he's going to factor that in. Um, and yeah, so sure the, he, does. <laughs> <laughs> he does. So the reverend turns around and he denies any of this. He says, no, no, no. 
everything that she has told you, it, it must be some misunderstanding. What I have told you is correct. I got home at 11. I went to bed, woke up around two. She's still missing. I call around. They haven't seen her. This is the first I'm hearing about her going over to the neighbors again at 10 p.m. I I don't know. This is a misunderstanding. So the police find Mary Lou's car along Highway 22 on the shoulder of the road. So it's not Highway 9, but you can get to Highway 9 from where she is. From Highway 22. Got it. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. So the car has very little damage to it. It's in a a stand of trees, but it it didn't actually hit the trees. It's just kind of off the side of the road there. The engine is running and the headlights are on. Mary Lou is inside the car and she is dead. She is covered in blood, her face swollen, bruised. It is covered in lacerations. She also had a dislocated nose, a chipped jawbone, and part of her left ear was found in the back floorboard. There was blood on the outside of the car. It was on the windshield, the passenger door, and the rear window. So after looking at all this, the police are going to determine that she had been beaten to death, then put into the car and driven to Highway 22, and it was staged. You know, the car was pulled over. Okay. And she was made, okay. So they're going to determine that she was dead before she was put into the car. The coroners are going to do their investigation, do the autopsy, and they're going to decide that there are, there's bruising around her neck. So what they are going to say is someone tried to strangle her but failed, so they beat her to death and then put her in the car and then staged it. But everybody is in agreement that she was dead. The car was not wrecked to the extent of... To cause those injuries. Correct. Okay. Correct. It's you. literally just been pulled to the side of the road. Mm-hmm. It didn't hit a tree, nothing. So she is beaten to death. Maybe even maybe even it took two people to do this. You possibly. Might, you might surmise. They did surmise that mm-hmm. possibly one, possibly two people may have had something to do with this. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So... They cannot find a murder weapon. So the investigators go back to the reverend's home, and they do find a burn barrel. And in this burn barrel, they find some straw, which they say could have been from a straw hat or a handbag. They find a piece of cotton cloth that could have been from clothing, maybe the reverend's clothes he may have been wearing that night or the victim's clothes, but they could not tell for sure. There was nothing concrete to say this is the weapon this is who did it they can't ever seem to put that together forensic evidence was still in its infancy in 1970 and at the time they they sent a lot of the evidence this was examined by auburn university they had a big crime lab there at the time biggest in the state at the time yes they were very um they played a big role when they were investigating the, the Tuskegee murders, which was, if you don't know what that is, you should uh, Google the Tuskegee experiment. It is, a, it is a big black eye on the state of Alabama. Oh, it's are we talking terrible. about the syphilis study? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. There's and a so, great podcast on that, too. Um, you're wrong about. 
Oh, okay. Did a podcast oh. episode on. Mm-hmm. All right. So research that because that story is it, it's horrific but, yes. but the auburn crime lab played a role in that as well okay. and um and they're going to come into play this they're trying to uh figure out using forensic evidence what is happening with this and um so they can't find anything spoiler alert <laughs> uh they they cannot find a murder weapon they can't tie this they they are highly suspicious of the reverend and they are highly suspicious of another lady, and her name is Ophelia Burns. Is it Ophelia Burns? Right. Yes. Is that her last mm-hmm. name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're highly suspicious. They think maybe the Reverend did it, and they think that Ophelia played a role. And she was even indicted for this, but they didn't find any evidence. They, they guess that they think she drove the car right okay yes they think that she right. helped him yeah i mean it took it took two people to stage that death scene mm-hmm. somebody and had to somebody had to drive out there with the other car and so they could leave mm-hmm. when it was finished mm-hmm. that was the speculation allegedly yes. right allegedly so they have this grand theory but as you know a theory is one thing mm-hmm. but you have to be able to prove it and katie not a lawyer can say Yep, that's yeah. not going to do well for you in court if you don't have evidence to back it up. So who do they have? They have the testimony of the next door neighbor. They have Dorcas Anderson. Well, thank goodness at least she's going to come and get on that in that courtroom and tell us exactly what happened about that crazy phone call, right? Exactly. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot. She gets on the stand and she can't remember anything that she has told the police. In fact, she even gives them an alibi. So she gives the preacher, the reverend. She gives the reverend an alibi. Yep. yep. Wow. All of that wow. 10 p.m. car accident, all of that stuff. Wondering why his car wasn't torn up, all of that. She can't remember any of that. So and then so then the reverend is going to start working with his lawyer Tom Radney to arrange uh, Mary Lou's funeral. All this while you know all this court is is going going on, and then he's going to start trying to collect some life insurance that he has on his deceased wife worth fifteen thousand dollars. He purchased this shortly before her death. So shortly before her death, that he didn't have to pay the $12 to renew it. Very recent. Yes. So the insurance companies, they're not liking this. This is very suspicious to them, especially since they ruled her death a homicide. Mm -hmm. Right. They're going to give him some issues. They're not going to want to pay. It's going to go back and forth with with him and the lawyer. And um, they're also going to discover that he has life insurance policies that he took out in 1970. Uh, he's got several on his wife, who's now dead. He has one on his mother, his brothers, his aunts, his nieces, and his nephews, and the newly legitimized infant daughter. Word to the wise, as someone who used to sell insurance, anytime the insured dies within two years of you taking out that policy, that death is investigated. I wonder why that is the yeah, new I mean, policy. You know. And I just briefly, I just want to say before uh, Kelly continues, there's a chapter in this book that does a really good job of telling you what the insurance industry was like back then. And mm-hmm. it was, it was sort of, I think she refers to it at one point as the wild, wild west. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she goes, you could buy, you could, before you got on an airplane 
in the airport in the 70s, you could buy a life insurance policy on yourself and list your wife as the benefactor just in case your plane didn't make it. And it only covered that flight. Yeah. It's over in two hours. Whenever your flight's over, that policy They were like is, quarter policies, I think is it was, what they yeah. were described as. Yeah, mm-hmm. insane. Like vending machine. Yes, policy. vending it, it machine. Was, it was literally yes. a vending machine. Yes. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's, but sheaving is an, a very nice description of, of where the, where this originated back in England. Yes. And how they started. That's true. Yes. Fires and the famines and all started it and it was England. it was originally designed, I think, to cover the cost of funerals. It, I don't know that it was ever originally designed for you to gain To benefit wealth. financially. Right. right. It right. was to it was to help the lower class pay for funerals and mm-hmm. you to know, bury their loved one. And to cover and then eventually moved on to cover the, the breadwinner mm-hmm. if that you know, take care of, of widows and children. Yep. Okay. Yep. So He's he's gonna start trying to cash in and you know get whatever what is the term the death he, benefit he's gonna get all of this money from these policies the death benefit right it's literally called the death benefit the, there you go all right so he's working on that uh, the insurance companies don't want to pay so they're they're giving because there's an indictment mm-hmm. there he's been they're indicted suspicious. for possibly being involved in her murder so they're like we're not paying you until this all gets cleared up but remember Dorcas Anderson at the trial oh yeah and so then the trial's over okay I mean there's nothing so then he's he is free and clear to so collect now, on all these policies now he he and his lawyer are they're they're ready to collect and he promises his lawyer Tom Radney that uh, he's going to get half of all the insurance he collects so. Radney has a lot of um, dollar signs in as motivation for collecting on these life insurance policies. Well, that's his payment. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he couldn't pay him up front, so they negotiated a fee. Mm-hmm. And, and he's going to get half and, and, of whatever he collects. Right. And and Katie's going to get into this Tom Radney fellow that we're talking about, but he's very instrumental in the story and what the most prominent attorney in the city of Alexander City at the time. And I don't want to step on Katie's story, but that's why we keep bringing him up because he's going to play a vital role in how this story played. He's playing a vital role right now. Already. He's the only reason. Because without an attorney, Mm -hmm. uh, the reverend's getting none of this insurance money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're they're saying, nope, we're not paying. Mm -hmm. This is too suspicious. Yeah. Um, And and the fact that he has multiple policies Mm -hmm. on his wife. Um, you know, I'm only aware of one hmm. life insurance policy that KT has on me. <laughs> well, no, you might want to go home and check on that. I, I think KT keeps his business to himself. Yeah. He does. Check, very check that envelope in the bottom of the junk drawer. There may yeah. be more paperwork in there than you think. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be very careful about that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but that does raise some eyebrows having multiple mm-hmm. life insurance policies on one person multiple taken out consecutively because you know you can get more as you age and as your you know wealth grows or whatever in life but multiple taken out very close together so he could get them from different companies and mm-hmm. they were coming in the mail and mm-hmm. the insurance man coming knocking on the door as it mm-hmm. happened and the fact that he's got them on i mean it just any kind of relative i mean my gosh aunts uncles nieces nephews brothers the newly legitimized infant daughter his mother I mean, he's got a life insurance policy on everybody. Was that all known then? Did that all? Did he? I don't think it came out. Okay, really so came we're, out. Until that's a little bit of a spoiler because it's mm-hmm. it's it may be five or six years later before the pro- proliferation of his uh, insurance policies on family members becomes. 
No, I think they discovered that when they they were trying not to pay him this first time. Okay, they were using that as part of the suspicion. I understand. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, all right. So, we've said all of that. Okay. Now let's let's go to November of 1971. The Reverend is going to get married again. (laughs) Wait, who does he marry? I can't wait for you to say her name one more time. He marries Dorcas Anderson, yes. the neighbor. No. Now, now Dorcas at one point had a husband, and her husband's name was Abram. Abram was diagnosed with ALS, and she was his caregiver. He was confined to a wheelchair, and um, they had two sons. Um, now, Abram, his doctors thought that he would live a few more years. He was not to the point in his ALS where. They were saying it could be any day. And was in his 30s, right? He was. He was. He was. Very young. He goes into, in February of 1971, he goes into the hospital. And three months later, he dies at, uh, oh, at age 35. Okay. He's 35. So in May of 1971, Abram Anderson passes away. And then in November of 1971, same year, a few months later, Dorcas Anderson, his widow, marries the Reverend. Well, they're next Are you door neighbors. At that timeline, they're there. Okay, so yeah. the wife is found dead, murdered in in August of 1970. Mm-hmm. The neighbor husband passes away. In May of 71. May of 71, he marries the widow of the neighbor who also gave him an alibi in court. That was, a, that was different from the original. That was different from her told, original but- statements in November of 1971. Okay. Also, November is a big time. <laughs> in November of 1971, he's going to take out four life insurance policies on his new wife. Oh, the boy. same month they get married for life insurance. Policies. I smell a rat. Okay. After Abram passes away in the hospital, we've got the jury that, you know, they're, he, he didn't do, he wasn't found guilty for Mary Lou's homicide. Mm-hmm. Then the neighbor who's helping him, you know, in cahoots with him, her husband dies unexpectedly even though he had als and was in the in the hospital he was the prognosis was they're going to release him and he's going to be okay he dies mm-hmm. after this there are going to be rumors all around this community that the reverend is involved in voodoo practices so now we int- introduce voodoo okay People in this community, they're going to start shaking out their pillows at night. They're going to scrub their steps in the morning to fend off the spirits and the spells. He becomes this folklore known as the hoodoo man. And they're going to use this to make children behave, to make spouses act faithfully. They They fully believe that he used voodoo to fix the jury. And he used voodoo to cause Mr. Anderson's death. One widespread story was that the reverend was a seventh son of a seventh son. And in voodoo circles, that is important. That is a bit, that's very powerful because if you're born the seventh son of a seventh son or Mm -hmm. 
the seventh sister of a seventh sister. Okay. Okay. You have power over life and death, as I understand it. Okay. Uh, just quick Google. I'm not a voodoo expert. Do we know anybody who is the seventh of the seventh that we could that is a personal friend of ours that we could? I don't know, but if you are, let us know. Let us know. We're if curious. You're, if you're a seventh son of a seventh son, yeah, or a seventh sister of a seventh sister, do people even have that many children anymore? Not on purpose. Ooh. I don't. <laughs> Kelly does. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the children I have, but two's I enough. Don't, I don't have that many. I hear you. So okay, so. <clears throat> well, okay, so he's a seventh son of a seventh son. Even though, remember, I told you. The very first thing I told you about him (laughs) is he is the sixth of nine children. Yeah. Okay. He supposedly went down to New Orleans and studied voodoo with the seven sisters. The seven sisters are hoodoo women that were active in the 1920s and on. They are said to have psychic abilities, clairvoyance. They read minds, tell a person's future. There's some speculation that was it actually seven women? Because some people believe there were seven. Oh, I don't know. Seven women, seven yeah. sisters mm-hmm. who freakishly looked alike. Yes, they were interchangeable, basically. Y- yes, and um, they always looked like they were in their twenties, despite their age. Mm-hmm. And some people said it's one woman playing jokes, you know, tricks, not jokes, but tricks. For money, you know, changing clothes and then reading your, reading your fortune or not your fortune, but probably a lot closer to the truth than. Um, and then some people believe that it was one woman who what who had um six sisters, so she's like the seventh sister, and it was just one woman. The seventh one was the one that was. Mm -hmm. It was one woman, and anyways, it. All kinds of, of widespread rumors, and this book does an incredible job of going into um, back to the the start of voodoo and where it may have come from. It's a very very, very old practice yeah. and hoodoo, and um, it goes into all the different religious aspects and how in the South it plays into the Christianity religion. Because a lot of people think that um, they uh, are opposing, but in the South, it's it's proven to be that they can be working together. You would have some. It's pastors, a supplement to your Christianity. Some people, yes, some people, some pastors, preachers, you know, will use them. Um, they will preach a sermon in a in a Christian church, but then they also may have, you know, some kind of remedy for you at home. For, yeah. like you said, supplemental to. So what was going on? I mean, what you're telling me is that it was just it, the rumor mill got started when these weird things happened, and the reverend was involved in them, and it started to be an easy explanation to say, well, there must be voodoo involved, yes. because what other explanation is there? A coincidence? We don't believe in coincidence because we're we're in the South in the '70s, so there must be some strange exotic explanation and so we're going to land in the voodoo and the fact that they could not find they couldn't pin this murder on him and Mm -hmm. it was so obvious to everyone that he was guilty okay the fact that dorcas changed her story but not her name no oh i know Mm -hmm. and and then her husband 
dies unexpectedly. They're saying these rumors are just running rampant and they're afraid of him. People the people are, in the community are afraid of him. Okay. Yes. So he's also known as the voodoo preacher at times. Okay. So here we are, voodoo. There was nothing really to back up this practice of voodoo. People who interviewed him went into his home. They didn't find any evidence of this type of practice. The reverend himself didn't do anything other than just not be convicted mm-hmm. and take another wife. And but he's, uh, he's, he's glad not, to let these rumors persist. He, he's, I don't think he's doing anything to combat them. I don't think anybody's talking directly to him about it either. I think they're afraid of him. They're scared of him. And so they're just, this is what's, this is the, the talk um, behind his back. Okay. But it's, everybody's very serious about this and they're very afraid of him. In, uh, let's see, here we go. In our timeline, we're in December of 1971. So in November of 1971, he gets married, takes out the four life insurance policies. Then in December of 1971, he's going to be called to bail his brother out of jail. His brother's name is John Columbus Maxwell. They called him JC. He was arrested for drunk driving, and uh, he's scheduled to go back to court in February of 1972. Before John can, or John Columbus, JC, could go back to court in February of 1972, he's going to be found dead on the side of the road in Nixburg. But overly insured, I'm guessing. He but was found not in a car, right? Nope. He's found where Highway 22 meets Highway 9. Okay. So just so down we, the road we started, a bit. Okay. But let's think about this. We found Mary Lou was on Highway 22. Okay. You, they live in Nixburg on Highway 9. Mm-hmm. All right. You go, to, you go down Highway 9 and you can turn on to Highway 22. There is an intersection where those two roads meet. Yep. He's found there. Okay. Okay. And... Police are going to receive an anonymous call saying that a pedestrian was struck by a car. They find the body of John Columbus Maxwell on the side of the road, but they do not find any evidence of him being struck by a car. The body was very cold because it's December, and it's going to smell strongly of alcohol. When they test, when they do the autopsy, the the Blood alcohol was determined to be 0.41. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That's like, what, f- five times well, what you're legally The legal drunk limit at. is 0.08. Yeah. This is 0.41. So five of those. Mm-hmm. Now, JC, the brother, he's, he doesn't have a wife or any children, but he had a life insurance oh, policy. Oh, just bet he did. Uh-huh. And guess who was the beneficiary? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. At this point, some insurance companies are going to stop issuing the Reverend policies. Sounds like a solid say, business decision. Nope. And they're going to cancel the ones he currently has with them, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're going to. <laughs> Before done. you call to, again tomorrow, uh-huh. we're, we're canceling the one on I your. I think that really happened. Yeah. 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 It's going to be, uh, it's going to make Radley, uh, Radley. I knew I was going to call Somebody him. Somebody was going to do Tom it. You, Boo Radley. We'll, you guys will it's see why Tom, we did that in a minute. Tom Radney. I guess he's going to get busy again after this. Uh, <clears throat> to try to collect on all this. But the insurance companies are saying, we're done with you. Uh, not all of them, but most of them that he has mm-hmm. policies with. Now, in May of 1972, 
Dorcas gives birth to a son. On September 20th, 1972, a few months later, three men are driving on Highway 9, and they find her dead body in her car between 10 and 11 p.m. I'm not driving a fucking car on Highway 9 in Alexander (laughs) City, I'll tell you that. Uh, The car was on the shoulder of the road. It had very little damage, and it was a quarter of a mile from their home. Starting so to sound are, a little now, suspicious, now, Kelly. <laughs> we, we started out on Highway 22. Then we went to the intersection. Now we're, now actually, we're working at home. Now we're just a quarter of a mile okay. from home. Sounds like now, somebody's getting lazy. Here's what the reverend says. He says that she left home that night around 9 p.m. She tucked the kids in bed. She said she was going to see her mother to get some fish, mm-hmm. and she'd be right back. So her mother apparently had been fishing that day and had a lot of fish. It's a, you know, Lake Martin, uh, right there. Yes. So she's going to go get some fish, and she's coming right back. So after an hour, and she doesn't come back, he says you know, that he calls his mother-in-law to check on his wife, and the mother-in-law says that I've not seen her all day. She's not been here. So then he claims he went out to look for her, but he didn't find her. Do you remember how far away I said that car was? What did you was? say, a quarter mile from their home? A quarter of a mile is where that car on, was. Did on the side of the he road? Just, he just turned the other he way. Turned, he turned and went the other way, hmm. I guess. Had to have. Right. <laughs> if he didn't find her. So the autopsy, the coroner's going to say, uh, maybe strangulation. But I cannot confirm this because this, this um, is it the hyoid bone? Is that how uh-huh, you say the that? The hyoid bone. Hyoid bone. I'm not a doctor. Something in the Scott. throat area. I'm not, a do- I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor. Because it's like, it's like back up under your it tongue. Keeps, it holds your of? tongue in place. Okay. So that has been damaged. So he's thinking maybe strangulation. However, mm-hmm. that Bone can also be damaged during an autopsy. And like 90% okay. of the time is, right? Like yes. that's like, it's so common that they can't. Yes. Yeah, so the coroner says, <laughs> guys, <laughs> um, it could have been someone damaged this bone in her body or it really could have just been me. Okay. When I was trying to do the autopsy. So the cause of death for... The Reverend's second wife, who is 18 years younger than him. And still named Dorcas. Dorcas. And <laughs> he is, he's 50 about this time. Nothing wrong with that. the math. <laughs> and she's 18 years younger. Natural, Nothing wrong with that. Natural causes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe a respiratory disease. Possibly. Maybe. But it's really natural Unconfirmed. causes. Unconfirmed. It's natural causes by default. I mean, okay. so <laughs> he, is, by he default, has put a voodoo hex on another so, so now uh, we're, medical oh, examiner. People are exactly okay. terrified. Terrified of him. And he, once again, we don't have, we have no evidence. The car is not damaged. To the point of we can say she had a wreck, and but but there's no damage to her body. There's right. nothing significant on her body that you can look at and go, "Yep, that's what killed her." Natural causes. All right. So therefore, there is no. I mean, this is not ruled a homicide, so there's no trial for this. No, no, she's just dead. No, and so now Katie is out of a job on this murder. Inter- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Enter Tom Radney and the Reverend. They're going to collect. Remember, he got he took out four mm-hmm. policies on her the yeah. day they got married. But this was before, as Katie mentioned earlier, this must have been before there was a moratorium on turning in a life insurance policy. You've the first two years. No, they do investigate, and so I think Kelly okay. Kelly might go into this. Um, but they try to say, well, if you know, if they say because that's where the respiratory disease comes up, and they're mm-hmm. like. Well, did she have a pre-existing condition that wasn't then we put on the application? Well, yeah, they're they're fighting over like okay. nitpicky things, right? And then they're going to come back and say, um, "It doesn't no. really say what killed her." And- no, it's it that you know the, if you look at the report, it doesn't really say. So therefore, the life insurance is is valid, and mm-hmm. so they're going to go back and forth. But at this point, um, there there's a lot of lawsuits because the insurance companies have gone and hired their own lawyers and. They're fighting a lot of different lawyers from a lot of different companies, a lot of different law firms. Okay. So <clears throat> Radney is going to need some help. And so he gets some help from Fred Gray. Fred Gray at the time was a very big time lawyer. He represented Martin Luther King Jr. after he was charged with tax evasion. He fought against Governor Wallace so that they could have the march from Selma to Montgomery. Okay. And he represented the victims of the Tuskegee experiment, the ones that we mentioned earlier where the crime lab came. Right. He got a huge settlement for their families and the victims of the, of that experiment. He was also in the Alabama house of representatives. This is a big name. Fred Gray is a big name. Okay. So they're going to get him to help. And so the reverend's got a team of, of, you know, Radney and Gray helping him against these insurance companies. And the fact that her death was real natural causes, I mean, they've got to pay up. Yes. They get, they, they rake in a lot of money. All right. So the Reverend has been, it it is proven quite lucrative to represent the Reverend. Some of the, yeah, and those were some of the knocks I think that Katie will explain to us that, that Radney had against him was that this guy was his most, uh, uh, most frequent client and seemed like a, a bad seed to at least some of the people in Alexander City, but Radney seemed to have no problem, like we mentioned in the Albert Patterson thing a few weeks ago, holding his nose and doing his job. Yep, he did. And it was very lucrative for him. Right. <laughs> if if uh, uh, the money must have smelled nice. Yeah, it must <laughs> He's have. holding his nose for the other stuff. The yeah. money might have smelled lovely. <laughs> So, at this point, the reverend is going to lose his churches. The churches are like, mm, you know, we don't, we don't really want to hear your Seems to be a anymore, pattern here, reverend. And we're not going to ask you to come to our revival. And so, he becomes a church goer. Okay. And not a preacher at this point. And now we're in November of 1972. 1974, I'm sorry. We're in November. November, what a great month. 1974. It keeps coming up, November. Mm-hmm. The Reverend's going to get a third wife. Wait, let me guess who she is. <laughs> is she? Has she already been involved in the story in some way? Oh, yes. Scott, how did you know? Uh, remember, I checked your notes. <laughs> remember Ophelia Burns, who I mentioned was uh, indicted in the first wife's murder as an accomplice? Mm-hmm. That's who he's going to marry as his third wife now again let me say this she was indicted but obviously was not charged (laughs) so she's going to marry the reverend in november of 1974 
Because he is no longer an actual reverend, even though they still call him that, he goes back to pulp wooding. He's going to He's, he just pours himself into that, and he's very devoted to it. And a lot of the people he did work for, were they just, they just bragged on him. They, did, they thought hard the, worker, did a great they job. They thought the job that he did, pulp wooding, was just amazing. And he had a crew. He worked for a company called Bama Wood, and he was a crew leader. And on this crew, he had many men. And one of them was his nephew. His nephew's name is James Hicks. James Hicks, along with several other members of his crew, are very nervous about the Reverend working and being in charge of them. They do, they're afraid of because him. Because of the voodoo. And because of the murder. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Allegedly. Right. So they are very, very nervous about this. And they don't, they don't like it. So much so that James Hicks, his nephew, this is one of his sister's children. That's why the different last name. He's going to quit this job and take another job in another part of Alex City. He's mm-hmm. going to go work for another mill. It just says mill. It doesn't, it doesn't specify in my research. So okay. You may can find that later to know exactly where he went to work. But he, he takes another job in a different part of Alex City. And he and his young wife, he, he's young. He's got a young wife. He's taking a different job. He's, he doesn't like working with his uncle. He's, he's done with that. Got it. On February the 14th, 1976, James Hicks goes missing. His car. <laughs> Let me guess. Highway 9. Was found on the shelter of Highway 9. <sighs> now he had a few small cuts on his body. That was it. He had some caffeine and a little bit of alcohol in his system, but that was it. There was nothing. There was nothing to say. He didn't have enough caffeine, enough alcohol, and enough small cuts on his body. Nothing. His last meal was a beer and a cup of coffee. Who, uh, maybe. Right. Yeah, sounds like it. Caffeine, alcohol, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, they don't know why this man's dead. This young man on the side of Highway 9 on the shoulder of the road um, doesn't have it. They can't figure out why is this man dead. Now, when they start looking, searching Hicks's things and the items, they find an insurance policy. It's in the Reverend's handwriting. And mm-hmm. would you like to guess who the beneficiary is? I think we can both uh, make a pretty good educated guess at this point, Katie and I. I'm assuming it's the Reverend Maxwell himself. Yes. Now, does that make sense? I mean, he's got this young wife. They're young. When you're in your... I'm going to say 20s. Are you thinking about life insurance? Nope. You should be, but nobody does. But if you are, why would you you name your uncle the beneficiary? Yeah. And especially have him fill out the form for you. Why would it be in his handwriting? (laughs) And why would would your wife report? So so James Hicks' wife is going to, she's 100% sure that the Reverend is responsible for his death. 
I am too. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. <laughs> and and she's going to talk about how Ophelia has been calling around to all the different relatives and asking for James's social security number. So they can fill out his life insurance form. Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. Wow. So, okay. This death, James Hicks's death, is ruled fishy natural causes. <sighs> you know what? Let me say this. And I was gonna, <clears throat> I was gonna say this earlier. In all seriousness, there's one section in the book where, uh, where the author Mrs. Sepp mentions the fact that because this was an African American family that w- this was all involved in in the 70s in Alabama. First of all, there wasn't a lot of appetite for domestic violence cases in the right, 70s. Right. You know, it did not get the attention paid to it like it does today. And also this was black on black crime and a lot of communities just shrugged their shoulders and didn't pay as much attention to it as they should have as they would today. It just, you know, just yes, this part of the past of the state mm-hmm, of Alabama. Mm-hmm, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately. Part of the past of Yes. United States, yeah, really. Not, yeah, not, not but, an but more prolific in the yes. South. Uh, just terribly unfortunate and, and ridiculous. And yes. It is ridiculous Agreed. at this point. We've got another death. But, but they can't, there's no evidence. And again, as much as I want them to, obviously it's this man, mm-hmm. allegedly. But, I mean, you can't. You can't take this to court. You're going to lose. Yes. You mm-hmm. don't have anything. So <clears throat> at this point, the FBI is very interested. Oh, well, They're thank like, goodness. Oh. Okay. Like, you know what? We're going to dig into this. And they have agents James Abbott and Herman Chapman. And Herman Chapman has a nickname the bear tracker. Ooh. I just feel like you have to say it like a the yeah. bear tracker. I agree. Yeah, it's very mm, intimidating. They're going to talk to James Hicks's widow, and she's going to talk with them and tell you exactly what I just told you about her calling around, asking for social security numbers. She's just very sure they had a they had a weird altercation before this one night on the road where he pulled up in his car. They were driving along. He pulls up right behind them and kind of shines his light. You know, they have to pull over. Right. And her husband, James Hicks, the nephew, gets out, tells her, don't get out of the car. Talks to his uncle for a little bit. He gets back in the car. And all she says was he was just very vague about the conversation they had. He never would talk about it. He mm. never would say anything. Then he quits his job, gets another job, and then now he's dead. To, okay. we're, we're in 76. February of 76. So the agents are going to start interviewing and, and talking with people around town. And it's not going to be until April of 1976 that they're going to talk to someone who's very interesting to them. And his name is Aaron Burton. Now, Aaron uh, claimed that the Reverend asked him to help murder two of his nephews. And he started the conversation by asking him, how dirty are you? And when he was satisfied by Aaron's answer going back and forth, you know, that he's dirty enough. Right. Then he says, 
I need you to help me murder two of my nephews, and there's $4,000 in it for you. The two nephews he names, James Hicks and Jimmy Maxwell. Now, after he tells Aaron Burton exactly how he's going to do it, Aaron refuses. He backs out. He's, I, I, I'm not going to do this. Okay. And then when Hicks is found dead, the reverend is going to make a, a visit to Burton's father and his brother and warns them that Aaron better keep his mouth shut. The agents, the FBI agents, are also going to interview Calvin Edwards. Calvin Edwards was a member of the reverend's pulpwitting crew. He's on the same crew with James Hicks, and they worked for the Reverend when he was pulpwitting. He's going to say that in February of 1975, almost a year before Hicks's death, the Reverend approached him, said the exact same thing, how dirty are you? And then proceeds to tell him. So what's his plan? How's he, how is he planning on killing these people? What is he doing? His plan is, you're going to take him out drinking. I'm going to give you a pill. You're going to put it in his drink. It's mm-hmm. going to make him very dizzy. He's going to pass out. Now, you're going to put him in his car. You're going to take him to... Highway 9. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm going to be there, and I'm going to smother him. While he's incapacitated. Yep. and. Uh, that's why there's no marks or anything that would say whatever, yeah. whatever that pill is, is something that I'm guessing the crime lab at Auburn University does not test for. I, I'm guessing not. Right. Or the coroner or whoever else is testing for it. That's what he tells Calvin Edwards, which it makes perfect sense now why we can't seem to find, you know, where you're getting all these Deaths ruled natural causes, mm-hmm. except Mary Lou's. She was beaten to death. Right. Um, but now you're getting, having someone smothered, that, that's, that makes sense, right? Yes. No, yeah. That's okay. what they do in all the movies in the hospitals. Oh, so right. scary. Yeah. So scary. Okay, but remember I said that James Hicks's death was ruled natural causes. Okay. Guess what? You can't pin that murder on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's right. not a murder. It's yeah. not a murder. It's not a homicide. It wasn't murdered. If if they don't put the cause of death is or the um there's two different ways they word uh autopsy reports and I don't think it's the cause of de- the manner of death. If the manner of death is not homicide you can't press charges on anyone. That's it doesn't the, matter what yeah, happens. That's the end of the conversation that's right the there. end of the conversation. Okay. Yes. So they've gathered this information from these two <laughs> gentlemen. They can't really do anything with it other than keep a suspicious eye on the reverend. All right. <sighs> oh, no. The story continues. Yes. I'm, I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. I'm not, I, I I'm not making fun. No, of, of course not. This is insanity. So now we're in June of 1977. Ophelia and the Reverend adopted a daughter, and her name is Shirley Ann. Now, they they didn't adopt the daughter in June of 1977. They adopted her when they were first married. Mm -hmm. 
but she is now 16 in 1977. And um, they are describing her as difficult. Because she's, she's 16. She's rebellious. <laughs> right. She's moody. She's surly. She's... I mean, that sounds like a lot of 16-year-olds most like of the time. like every teenage girl I've ever known in my life. <laughs> so she's she's a 16-year-old girl, and so they're just saying, she, Ophelia just kept saying she was surly, she was not herself anymore. They called her Shell. All of her friends okay. and her family nicknamed her Shell. And she just says she was surly, she was not herself, she was in a mood, and Shell just took off in the car on that night or day of June 1977. They later found the car that she took off in on the shoulder <sighs> of Highway 9. Shit. A mile from the, ho- the house. The house. The home. The house. Let me say it again. <laughs> I got you. Go. Yeah. A mile from the house. Wow. Drink up. This, this Highway 9. You know what? Maybe instead of drinking when we say wow in this show, people should drink when we say Highway 9. Highway 9 is the We've said game. that more times. Yep, or shoulder of the road. Off the car was found on the shoulder of the road. <clears throat> she was found under the car. Uh, it was staged to look like this. That the front tire was flat, and she tried to change it, and the car fell on her. Okay. So it was staged like she, she pulled out the jack. She, she jacked up the car. She was under the car. It fell on her. That's how it was staged, but it was very, very obvious that this was staged because, number one, the front tire wasn't flat. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, number two, her hands were clean. You can't get within one inch of a tire without being covered True. in yeah. grease and, you know. Yeah. And the lug nuts that would have been loosened, that you loosen when you change a tire, they were found underneath her body. Instead of beside her. So they thought that was very weird mm. that the lug nuts, how did they get? And it, it just looked like a staged. Well, and it's also weird that anybody would think that a 16-year-old girl would know how to change a tire. When you're or, a mile from home, you just walk down the road. Yeah, or that even if she knew how, because I, I guess I know how. I mean, my granddad had taught me how. Well, good for your grandfather. But I wouldn't. I'm gonna have to be really stranded in the middle of nowhere to yeah. change a tire and not and not call somebody or again, walk or walk not to a station. Nine, again a mile. Not a one mile, mile yeah. from home. Yeah. Just oh, walk no. home yeah, and yeah. say right. I can't do. But the tire's not flat. The, mm. the, there's no flat that is, tire. That is poor plan. That seems yeah. That seems like an oversight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now we are at Shell's funeral, and they're having a funeral service for their daughter. One of the other teenage daughters, her name is Luvinia Lee, is watching the Reverend. And Ophelia is obviously upset at the death of this daughter. The Reverend, according to Lavinia, didn't have a care in the world. No tears, no nothing. He's sitting there. He's comforting Ophelia, but he's not invested like a grieving father. So Lavinia points her finger at the reverend and says, you killed my sister and now you're going to pay for it. 
And before anybody can respond to this, including the reverend, a man sitting behind him pulls out a pistol and fires three rounds into the reverend's head. Killing him instantly, I'm guessing. They say he tried to lift a handkerchief, but died before he got it up to his face. All right. And that's where my part ends. That is also where the best line in this entire book comes from. And I quote, Whether he was a hero or a cold-blooded murderer depended on whom you asked. But one thing was clear. The man who shot the reverend was going to need a good lawyer. And as it turned out, the best lawyer in town needed a new client. Well, that was part one of our series on the Reverend. Part two, we'll have next week. It's our first ever multiple part series. Thank you, Kelly. I'm so excited about this. Kelly, you did part one and you nailed it. And uh, uh, Katie's going to talk about this Radney fellow, this lawyer that, that we have discussed briefly, but we'll get all into what's going on with him next week. And then, uh, and then Harper Lee's involved in this too, and I can't wait to tell that story in, a, in, oh my in another episode. But we're gonna we'll do it consecutively, right? We're not gonna make mm-hmm. them wait. We'll do it. This will be a three part show that happens in three consecutive weeks. But in the meantime, we're gonna have a live show same day this one comes out. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this, come on out to Easy Street. Show starts at seven thirty. Come see us live. Email us. If you have an idea, true crime on easy street at gmail.com. And if you uh, uh, get onto Facebook and you want to share some of the posts that we make to help us spread the word to let people know that we have a really cool podcast, do that and then give us five star review when you go and listen. Facebook, Instagram, follow us on both. We'll post updates and little teasers on this story and links to when the episodes come out. I'm excited. Are you guys excited? I am speechless, and that hardly ever happens. <laughs> We're going to be up all night tossing and turning, wondering when's the exciting conclusion going to happen of two this weeks. story. We just, we just talked about that. It's two weeks, Kelly. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> well, Thank see. you so much for listening. Good night, everybody. <laughs>